This is Kevin Evans with the chapter-by-chapter life class at Crossroads Assembly of God in Greenville. And we are currently studying uh, John of the Gospels. And uh, last week we finished up chapter 11, much to my surprise, which which dealt with the uh, uh, resurrection of Lazarus. And... um, (coughs) Excuse me. Just as a recap, John is not necessarily presenting the life of Jesus in any kind of a chronological sequence. I mean, there is a chronological sequence, but he's he's not hitting every point. It's not a history. He is illustrating what Christ's message, and he is preaching salvation to the world. And this is, uh, in my opinion, the um, written culmination of a lifetime of preaching. And, and you see all of these little symbolic refinements in, the thing that, in how John presents the gospel as opposed to the synoptics. It's, this, is a, this is a preacher story. It's not a history, if that means anything. So there's, there's actually a numeric structure to it. He gives you this, a certain number of signs and a certain number of uh, incidents, and they all have significance, and they are all uh, developed to about three to four times as the same incidents are developed in the other Gospels. So uh, it's important. He's only showing you the important stuff, and he's showing you the important stuff that has significance to the gospel and to the message of his book. So, so there's a point to it. Um, so, after the resurrection of Lazarus, we can assume that, well, the Bible, we don't have to assume it, the Bible tells us that uh, his notoriety as a rabbi ra- uh, massively increases. And he already had crowds that were following him around uh, Capernaum. Uh, But after he resurrects uh, Lazarus just north of Jerusalem, uh, just before Passover, as all of these Jews are coming in from the various dysphoria, uh, he becomes very uh, noteworthy. And so people are seeking him out. He's got crowds following him around uh, to the point that it's a problem. And uh, Lazarus, because he is resurrected, has also become uh, uh, noteworthy because, you know, he's the guy that was dead and now he's alive. Let's go talk to him. Uh, I don't know that Lazarus was preaching or anything, but he was... Yes. Well, we're getting there. We're getting there. And uh, hey, so today we're jumping into chapter 12. And 12, man, I put three times as much work in this as I usually do. Um, 12 is a transitionary chapter. And it it ends Christ's public ministry. There's no, Christ does not speak to the group. Uh, or, or to, to the masses again after this chapter. And it begins his walk toward death. It, it begins his sacrifice. Uh, he uh, doesn't pull back. He doesn't say, don't talk about this anymore. He doesn't go and say, oh, my hour has not yet come. In fact, he says, this is the hour, you know. 
And so uh, he embraces this moment and he gives this one last final message in chapter 12 and then it's the passion play all through you know to the end of the chapter and uh john you know tells that story so it's not like we haven't we're not familiar with it but i i I, there are two or three interesting little tidbits in here that i had i was kind of surprised that i didn't even remember and i think i'm relatively well read with the bible I didn't remember God speaking from heaven to backing up what Jesus just said to a crowd. Why don't they put that in the movies? What was that about? I don't remember this incident. And I read this two or three times and it baffles me. I don't understand the incident. And and we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. But, uh, you know, and just uh, Christ's teaching is loaded and there's, you know, and I'm not quite sure where he was going with it the first time. And I had to go back and dig in it again and looked up commentaries and threw commentaries away and got more commentaries. You know, it's, it's like that. Uh, and, then, and so this is kind of an important point in the book. I think we need, it, 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 things shift at this chapter. So we need to understand what John's telling us in this chapter. So, having said all that, with the big buildup, let's go to John chapter 1, and let's read through verse 11, a passage that I've already beaten to death two weeks ago. So, we are not going to spend two... John chapter 12, verse 11. Did I say... John chapter 1. Did I not... Did I... I, I'm sorry. John chapter 12, for those three people listening on the internet, I misspoke. Six days before the Passover... So we have a little, that, that's when it is. I don't know if there's a time jump there. No, there's not. Okay. Jesus arrived at Bethany, which is two miles north of Jerusalem, where Lazarus lived and where evidently he was used to li- hanging out when he was in Jerusalem. Uh, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Scandalous! And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages, and he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, says John. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. I think that opens a big question as to how he knew that, because I don't think he knew that then. I think he, I think after the fact. Those apostles get together and they talk shop, you know, that happens. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Aren't they nice? For an account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. All right, we, I talked, we discussed the family of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha a great deal. 
and uh, we discuss Mary a great deal, and I think we've all agreed to disagree at that point. So let's kind of move on a little bit past it. John makes a point of showing a juxtaposition between Mary uh, in this uh, very humiliating, well, uh, humbling, let's go with humbling sacrifice in uh, this very expensive uh, uh, treasure that she has in this nard and uh, in, 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 in anointing Christ's feet. And then he shows that, which is worship. This is worship. And it's pure. And I don't know that she knew that she was anointing him for his burial, but Christ specifically calls that out. This is a symbol, and it is the beginning of this walk toward the cross that he's about to start making. And then John shows us Judas Iscariot as the opposite of Mary. We have opposite foils, if you want to get into the Shakespearean term. And so uh, Judas is, is not worshiping, and he's begrudging the expense, and he's got his hand in the till. He's the absolute opposite of what Christ is looking for. And we understand Mary's sacrifice more because we're, John is showing us next to Judas's greed. No, this is the third time Mary was at the feet of Jesus for comfort. Hmm. Are you going to elaborate? No, I just didn't know if you realized that that, that she was three times at his feet for comfort, oh. and uh, and she was also three times at Christ's feet for service. I just I didn't know if you realized that, and I wanted to read I wanted to read th this verse 3 again. Now mine says then took Mary a pound of ointment of spinkered, very costly, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with odor. Spinkard. So. Do you know what spinkard is? I think it's nard. Is it just another word? It's, it's a perfume that is used in uh, weddings and funerals. What, what exactly it was. I would suspect, and this is Gospel of Heaven, that Mary, Mary was unmarried, we know, and I think she, and, and she had this rather expensive perfume, and uh, if, if it's the same incident as in the other, she had it in a very fancy little white jar. And I can only guess that this was something of a, like a dowry in the West, and it was something that she's saving for her wedding that she was going to use at her wedding. So it was probably the more, most, probably the most expensive possession that she has. Or else she, because we know that she was a lady of the evening. We don't know. Maybe a different Jump up here. I do not know. No, it says. Well, I think, I, I think, okay. My, my, argument, my argument against that would be is Lazarus is rich as he. Here we go. Yeah, but they, if you go back, if, if you go back further in the, in the scripture, it talks about Mary was. Could it be a different Mary? Well, it said Martha. Well, we've been down this road okay, two weeks ago. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we beat this to death. Yeah. Let's not do this again, please. Keep moving on. We'll agree to disagree. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Phil. Maybe, sure, maybe. So one, of the, okay. one of the times that she was at his feet, do you remember when Martha was cooking and she went to Jesus because Mary was at his feet and 
said, make my sister come help me. And of course, he explained to her real quickly that she was yeah. ministering to him. Yeah, poor Martha, so type A. The Which amazing I, thing about that story is, I mean, we do know that it's the same Mary that's a prostitute, but the amazing thing about that story is Jesus tells the Pharisees, you know, who is more appreciated. Let's say both people are in debt. Let's say you owe money and I owe money, right? Let's say we owe, we owe money yes. to Kevin, right? Who owes the most money to Kevin and Kevin wipes the debt is going to be more appreciated for that debt being wiped. And so Mary was a woman of the night, yes, and she was full of sin, but she loved Jesus and she asked for forgiveness, so her debt was wiped. So her love was greater for the Lord because her sin was greater. You know what amazes me is that they because wanted to kill. Self-righteous. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No. What amazes me is they wanted to kill Lazarus, but what would killing Lazarus accomplish? Because Jesus had already raised him from it's, the dead. It's getting rid of all the evidence. Yeah. Yeah, but everybody's already seen the evidence. <laughs> well, he's a witness, and, he's and, witness. and if we eliminate him, he's not a witness anymore. That's right. And I think it's. Well, we we down this road too. I, I think it's amazing that you have religious ministers who are ready to commit murder in order to justify themselves. And you can rationalize anything. I you know you really can. If they sit there for two hours, they can come up with six good reasons to kill somebody. You could too. And um, <laughs> it is it is the human condition. And, uh, but, and so they, they've rationalized that they need to get rid of Christ because he's a heretic and he's messing with uh, their teachings and he's an abomination to God. And if they repeat that loud enough and long enough, people start to believe them and then, then they do and then they can go take care of business. But Lazarus, he was just a regular old everyday guy who got risen from the dead. What did he have to do with any of that? You know, uh, I think... I. I Yes, there's a, this huge, unjust, rationalized, you know, vendetta against Christ, but it's sucking in all these innocents behind him, as there, as as every vendetta does, I guess. <coughs> so, you know, I kind of feel sorry for Lazarus. You think he'd keep a lower profile? <laughs> Maybe he did. I would if I were Lazarus. Okay, so yeah, they're planning to kill him too. Which brings us to verse 12, and we get to finally move on. The next day, and this was five days before Passover, because it's, they were just six days before Passover. The great crowd that had come for the feast, meaning the Passover, <coughs> heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! And this is a quote from, um, is it Isaiah? Blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And it was probably a chant or even a song where they're singing this verse from, uh, from Isaiah where they're referring to the Messiah. They're declaring him Messiah as he comes into town. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. John speaking for himself right there. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. 
Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Symbolism upon symbolism upon symbolism upon symbolism in this. And John doesn't, just skips over it all. Like, none of that matters. <sighs> Maybe it doesn't. But we're going there anyway. Um, in the ancient world, it wasn't just the Hebrews. But when a king particularly a conquering king, entered a town. He did so with pomp and circumstance. Uh, he came in with a large entourage. There was a parade. And he had soldiers up front. And the soldier's job when they got there was to make sure the gate is open and that all the little people are out of the way they don't get to use the road while the big shot is in town. So the soldiers march in and push everyone out of the way, and then they bring in the advisors, and then the king comes in riding a horse. Because a horse is a symbol of authority in the ancient world. Uh, they, they grew them big, at least in Arabia they did. And, uh, and, and you wanted to be up high looking down on the little people. You would think they would, a camel can be bigger, and I, but a horse is the symbol of authority. You would think they would come in on an elephant or something, because like, that would be even taller. Like a wagon? Yes, but no, they ride it in a horse. A horse is a symbol of a king, and an elephant is not. I do not know why. Anyway, and so that was a big deal. And then uh, and everybody's supposed to step back and show honor to the king as he passes. Uh, and if you're Caesar and you're coming back from uh, uh, your, your, your battles and your conquers, you, you bring in all of your slaves in cages or chains behind you and because these are the new wealth that I'm bringing back to the city. It, he, it's, it's a big brag about, look what I just caught, you know. And so that was the tradition. Now, if you are an emissary from the kingdom next door and you're not coming over to show how tough you are, you're just coming to have a chat with the king's number three treasury guy because you've got to work out this thing about the canal. You know, if you're just there on business, but you're still an important who's-its in the royalty of whatever that you're coming from, you don't want to walk in riding the horse because you look too uppity and you look like you're claiming authority that isn't yours. You're there under the cover of somebody else. However, you're still important because that whole canal is dependent upon what you're about to decide. So you still have to walk in with a little bit of ceremony. So you do have, you don't have a whole entourage of people. You've got three. And uh, they come in in front of you. And you don't ride a horse because that's a symbol of authority. You ride a donkey. Because that's what regular people ride. It's not, it's not intimidating. Donkeys were also much more common in the Middle East than horses were at the time. And smaller. And, and smaller. So and like easier someone, to maintain. So it's like the equivalent of someone riding in in a limousine versus just getting ready to go to the county park. Uh, yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. And so Christ is entering Jerusalem as a king. People, the parade has begun. He is the only one on the road. They are waving palm fronds, which is something you do for the king when he comes through on his horse. And they're, they're quoting from Isaiah? Did I get that wrong? Uh, Well, that's nice. So that make him a Democrat, does he? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I had to go there. I'm sorry. Um, so he, he's coming in as a peaceful person. And, in the, uh, and he's made arrangements for this donkey. In the Synoptic Gospels, uh, he uh, sends the apostles ahead. John says he found it. I don't think John knew the story or forgot that the, you know, that Matthew wrote that down for him. Uh, I don't know. It's, uh, you're, uh, you're gonna have to, don't sit on the floor, that's wrong. There are plenty of chairs. You don't have to sit by your wife. Okay, there you go, there you go, okay. Fixed it. And now you're sitting behind me. That's just, that's, now I'm, I'm really nervous. You know, the bottom line, Kevin, is that the, the Pharisees, I think their whole thing was they, they were losing total control of their power yeah, absolutely. Over, the, over the people. And that was their whole bottom line. They needed to control that power over the people, kind of like the Democrats. But anyway. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I think we're probably. Uh, you know. I think, that's all, I think it's a political problem, not just a problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know. In a bureaucracy, everybody in the pecking order is above somebody and below somebody, and it goes all the way up to the boss who answers to everyone. That's how that works. And so in theory, President of the United States, the most powerful man in the West, uh, answers to the people. Well, and, and, and he ignores them at his peril. Let's put it that way. And uh, that our founding fathers said as much in even more graphic language. So, okay. Uh, so, yes, that, that backs up your point. So here, the Pharisees are nervous because we have a challenge to their power and the people are shifting away from them. And uh, how do you get rid of the opposition? Well, that's the fastest way. <laughs> And it's the old, respected, ancient way. In fact, it, it works pretty well these days, too. So um, we just frown on shooting the opposition. You know, it would be better to, I don't know, win the people over with your logic and reason and, and the spirit of God. I'm trying to figure out where the... It takes too long. Yeah, just, just shoot them. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out where it came in, though. Where they, they, where, I'm trying to figure out what they did to make such a huge shift. I mean... Here all the people are glorifying him coming in, and then they all turned on him. It's like I'm trying to figure out when what did they, they turn on him? When did they? Huh? When they all started, you know, accusing him falsely, and they were taking him to trial, and all of this. It's like everybody abandoned him. I mean, they all it was a loaded crowd. <laughs> I, I don't think the masses were present when he at his trial. I think it was the the loaded shills that the Pharisees got there. That's why they had it at, what, daybreak in the morning or whatever it was. Yeah, when they knew nobody, no, knew nobody would be there. So, 
I, I know those political meetings that you have at the one moment where you know nobody will come. Do it on Super Bowl night? Yeah, yeah. I know of electors for the Republican Party, actually, that were elected in a van. They, were, they, were, they had the electors meeting, which is supposed to be a big public meeting, in a moving van. That way they knew that nobody would be able to vote against them because they can't get in the van. There, there goes the meeting. Yeah, I think that might have broken a rule or two, but that's how the electors got elected. I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where I'm saying this is not a Republican versus a Democrat. No, it's not. This is just good old corruption. Okay. All right, all right. Uh, so, uh, Christ enters as king on a donkey, and people declare him king. And I assume that at this point, Christ goes to the temple because it's Passover, where he's going to preach. doesn't say that. In fact, this gets a little tricky. This is what stumped me for so long. And we start off with a story and then drop the story and then it goes into something else or did it? They don't say, it's, there's a connector in here that, that's missing. So verse 20, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew and Andrew and Philip in turn Toward Jesus. Got that? Next paragraph. Jesus replied. Now that would imply that he's replying to Andrew and Philip? Is he replying to the Greeks? Or is he replying to the crowd at the temple? That, that's how I read it, but I'm reading this from a Western perspective on an English translation of a Bible that came from ancient Greek. And, and, and I'm a little nervous about implying too much here. So Jesus replies what doesn't seem to be an answer. And we don't have a question from the Greeks. We don't know what they asked him. And now Jesus is replying. Where's the question? <coughs> Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it. And while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father... Save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. God, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. I find that to be the most confusing passage in this entire chapter. Jesus said, this is the voice for all your benefit. This voice was for your benefit, not mine. 
They didn't understand what he said. So how is it for their benefit? Now is the time for judgment in this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd got that he's talking about crucifixion. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Thinking that he's not referring to himself. Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, he hid himself. You know, going back to verse 30, mine has a side note that said, when he said this voice came not because of me, but for your sake, it was basically Satan's defeat prophesied. Is that what your Bible says? That's what a side note of mine said. Okay. Um, we'll get to that, Bill. Uh, Greeks. We got to start at the beginning. <laughs> what, why? Why does John waste? Because it takes a long time to, to write this down. He, he wastes twenty minutes talking about Greeks writing this book, and then we don't have a question, and we don't get back to them, and they're not mentioned again in the gospel. He he like drops this. You are not the first to suggest it. Uh, that, that, that is a proposal, actually, that we don't have the entire gospel. I forget which novelist said it, but it says if you, if you, if you introduce an ostrich at the beginning of your, 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 your book, you best come back to the ostrich at the end because it's, it, it has a purpose for being there. Um, it doesn't say that they have a question. So he's just on display? They, they came for an autograph? Well, he was, I guess they came to just see if the man truly was. I went through half a dozen commentaries, and the, the overall observation is that Greeks are Gentiles. Greeks are Gentiles at Passover in Jerusalem. Greeks, there were there, there were there was a, a group of Greeks that saw value in the Judaism because in the Greek faith the gods themselves are immoral, and they see you know Judaism Judaism is devoted to morality and there's one God and the God is loving compared to theirs. They saw. Uh, it, you know, there were a lot of seekers that have been Greek, very famous ones. And I think that they're looking for God, and they saw something here. However, they're Greek, and the Hebrews <coughs> maintain a division between themselves and anybody who's not Hebrew. And to become Jewish, to actually enter into the temple and be able to go past the outer court, you would have to 
completely convert to Judaism, disavow everything else, and be circumcised as a grown man. Uh, yeah, so if you're a Greek philosopher uh, and you saw the requirements of getting into the temple, maybe hanging out in the outer court would be a better, you know. And so there was a group of Greeks who, who, were, who saw Judaism as uh, interesting, and they would worship because they worship multiple gods. Why not add another one to your list? This one's interesting. Let's chase this one. But, but, they, but they stayed on the outside. And they, Yes. And I think God has always been reaching out to Gentiles. He's reaching out to all humanity. We're no, you know, but the, uh, the Jews were the method of delivery of the salvation for everyone else, you know, and that's why they had to be the chosen people, I'm guessing. So they show up, and, and basically those commentators say that John is including this to once again emphasize that Christ's gospel is open to Gentile as well as Jew. But I think that's a kind of a broad interpretation, and I still find this curious. Now, look at what Jesus replies to the crowd at the temple. Uh, life comes from death, and that anyone who embraces Christ will have life. Isn't that the message to the Gentiles? Isn't that what he would say to the Greeks? Follow me? Because right now, there is all kinds of impediments to Gentiles following Christ according to the law of Moses. But in about four days time, all of those boundaries are going to disappear and Christ I think this passage could be a direct answer to whatever the Greeks had to say to him. I think just being Greek was what they had to say to him. And so after he is lifted up, as he so colorfully describes it, um, then they're going to be able to embrace Christ also. It says in Acts 14.1 that the Jews and the Greeks came together in the synagogue. In, yes. Icon in Iconium. So you're right, at, at, after this, they actually come together under one roof. Just depending on how fussy your rabbi was. <laughs> well, the synagogue is more, it, it's not sacred ground. It's, it's almost, public. Uh, it's public. yeah, it, it's Temple's like a community different. hall. Temple's different. Yeah. Man, if you're not Jewish, you can't come. Right. Okay, so Christ says, now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very hour that I, you know, I came and uh, glorify God's name. And John regularly refers to the hour. And in three other places in John, chapters 2 and 7, he uh, uh, refers, to, he says, my hour has not yet come. And so this is the moment, this is the hour that, we're, we're, we, that, that we've been waiting for. And when he says, Father, glorify your name, he's accepting this sacrifice publicly in front of the temple, I think. God speaks from heaven. 
It would seem to me that if God speaks from heaven, he would expect you to know what he said. Why would God obfuscate what he's saying if he's going to the trouble of speaking to you directly? God doesn't hide things. I promise there are no secret messages in ancient transcripts that we have not dug out yet and we have not discovered the true lineage of Jesus through Mary. I promise all of that Dan Brown stuff is bogus. There's nothing secret. It's all blatant and upfront. God doesn't hide. No new messages that never been No new messages that have never been spoken before. It's, you really should. It's all here. I read them and gave them away, brother. I don't keep them in the library anymore. So, so you're also saying when God gives a prophecy to someone, it's not this weird thing that can be interpreted afterwards? To not according to the Gospel of Evans, no. So it's false prophecy. See, he just stuck those words right in my mouth, didn't he? Sure, why not? So when someone gives a prophecy, it doesn't happen, and they change it afterwards, what it really means is false prophecy? Yes, I think, I think that's the specific definition of a false prophecy, is when you change it later. Uh, but I don't get this. I don't get this, because this is what happened. A voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. That's what God said, and John knows that's what God said, so somebody understood what God said. Well, they all understood it. Uh, the crowd that was there heard it and said it had thunder. They heard thunder. They didn't hear words. They heard thunder. And everybody else says, I think an angel spoke to us. Uh, I want to read what mine says. Mine says the people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, it says they heard it, and they said it was like, it thundered, like his voice thundered. I think that's what I just said. It's not that, that, that it was thunder, that they heard thunder. They heard his voice, but it's like his voice was thundering out the message. They're describing his voice by calling it thunder. Yes. That's what you're saying. Yes. I've got to get me one of your magic bottles. <laughs> <laughs> you always have this different interpretation from everything that I've read over a week. What is that about? <laughs> what, what denomination are you from? <laughs> while ago, this was a Satan's defeat prophesied. Okay. Mm -hmm. I accept that. Or, uh, well, maybe sometimes when we hear something we don't like, we explain it away some other way. Oh, it was just a thunder. I didn't like what he said. You think they're rationalizing it? You heard God speak from heaven. How can you say, oh, well, that's not what he said. You know, you know, how many times have you heard someone preach something in church and that people didn't like it? I mean, you can. You can yeah, say, but that's people talking. I don't, I I don't trust that preacher. It's not I God I don't trust. I'm Bible on gossip, and I got called into the pastor's office for being in trouble from the people in the church. And I said, Show me in Scripture where I preach that. I quote Scripture. Well, what they don't like, they rationalize it. Oh, that is so sweet. Oh, okay. So if you don't know God, you don't hear his words? Wow. Okay, I, I realize.
nevertheless, that that is a fair interpretation of scripture. That's fair. But just personally, I have a hard time verbalizing that. I really do. Is God going to mumble at me? Trust me, no, when, you, okay, when, okay. when you when you cross the state line, you go back 30 years. So you're saying they don't listen to nothing? Is that what you're saying? What, no, what I'm saying they're very prejudiced and racist. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, that's, local. Oh. that's local, too. But that, that, that's, I think the problem is we mow God in our image. The 90s weren't that bad. We mow God in our image. <laughs> you know what? As much problem as I have with this, I have to say in Acts 9-7, Christ appears after his ascension to Saul and asks him why he persecutes him. And Saul is stricken blind. And he had two men with him. And both of those men heard something that sounded like a voice but did not know what was said. So here's God again speaking directly to a person who understood every word he said, the one he was directed to. But everybody else didn't. So when God speaks and you're not the recipient of the message, you don't get the message? I did, didn't I? I did. I did. I just, why do I find this to be so personally uncomfortable? I feel like when God talks, we should all, everyone should understand. The Muslim in the back should understand. Yeah, I am a know-it-all. I embrace that. I'm egotistical, and I'm an academic, and I can't stop. So, you know. Is that why Paul said he'd rather there not be, he'd rather there not be speaking in tongues in the church. He'd rather there be other things more, more importantly in the church than speaking in tongues, you know. Because he said that the same thing? Sometimes it's missed the sometimes it's misinterpreted. I oh sorry. <laughs> sometimes Satan thought I mean You know what I'm trying to say. Well I, I don't know. I mean 
You know where Paul's come where Paul was. I will say that because they were doing speaking of the tongues out of control. Everybody was giving a Can I just hand the microphone back there so you two could find no. <laughs> Well, no, I just, my, I think you're not going to Cal the Calvinist would say they don't hear because it's not predestined for them to hear. Oh, I see. What a nice Calvinist that. interpretation. That's yeah. the Calvin Calvinist that they're not going to understand because God chooses not to let them hear it because they're predestined for hell. Yeah, but if, if people don't believe, if they don't believe, you don't have understanding either. I mean, you don't. I, I want to go back to what Lester said. I thought it was a great point because Faith and I are listening to a book on audio, uh, Radical, and he talks about how we in the United States have molded God into our own image. And he says, actually, we need to ask ourselves the question, is the Jesus we're worshiping on Sunday truly Jesus, or is it the Jesus by our own molding based on our culture, based on what we want Jesus to be, which is idolatry? But if Jesus, uh, that Jesus doesn't match up with what we expect, if the true Jesus doesn't match up to what we expect, we don't like that. You know, because when he says, sell everything and give to the poor, whoa, wait a second here, I can't do that. You know, when he says, love your enemy, pray for your enemy, that person that's not like you go out, wait a second, but they believe this, they believe that, we don't like that. So we're going to reason why Jesus doesn't want me to hang out with someone of a political na different nature than me. We're like, that's idolatry. And go ahead. This isn't arguing with you, I agree. But as you say that, it occurs to me that every culture is going to read yeah. scripture and interpret culture yeah. based upon their own understanding. I live in the United States, so I say that. And, and um, if you go to Mexico, there's a very different interpretation of Christ in Scripture, and they're reading the same Scripture that we are. Same, that's, I, I'd say the same thing in Mexico. And, and, if you, and if you look at you know, Mexican art, then you know, Christ suddenly looks very Hispanic. And if you go to uh, Western Europe, uh, Christ is blue-eyed and blonde. And if you go to South Korea, well, strangely, he turns Asian. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> because, <laughs> because they're interpreting it based upon what they know, and I don't know that that's wrong. Well, but I think there's a fine line to where, okay, yeah, I want to identify him with cat. But when you go, when you let our culture determine theology and doctrine and Fair. the type of ministry to where, Faith will back me up. She was listening to it. He's he was the guy was a pastor. He was there's a news article in the church where the Christian gospel in the United States is very materialistic. And he said the, there was an article. This church built their twenty three million dollar facility, mm -hmm. and in the next article over, it talks about how that same church reached out to the Sudan in their drought, and they gave five thousand dollars to it. Yeah, you know, but. The article for 23 million was like this, and everyone's talking. And I'm not, but I mean, it just—it's a cultural thing. Well, success—we got to—we got to look successful. We got to look at this. When it gets into determining how we do ministry, how we look at other people, that's where the cultural thing gets bad. Well, or you'd say, oh, this church is successful because they have 5,000 members and have a 20 million dollar building and blah 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 blah. Well, who's to say that ch church is really any more spiritual than the church down the road that has 25 people that are? Are reaching their community and doing different things like that. We, as Americans, antiquate numbers with success. The Bible doesn't do that. Noah preached for a hundred years and left with his family on the boat. 
we get hung up on the, the American view of what success is, and it bleeds into the church and what we view as success in it. I listened to a guy speak. He said, I'm a, he was a pastor of a church of about 5,000 people in Chicago. He said, I'm a small church when you look at Chicago. He said, I have a friend that lives in a, that lives in a county of 1,000 people. His church runs 150. He's a mega church. Yeah. But he's viewed as a failure. I'm viewed as a success. That's cultural implications. Put on, I have a client. He's a Kenyan pastor. Big church in Dallas. And it's a church with Korean church, Kenyan church underneath its umbrella. He said a suggestion was made up at the last staff meeting to the main church, which is white, very affluent. Why don't we bring for one Sunday all the different ethnic churches together to worship? And the church said, no. Because, and he said it was basically said to because your worship's not like our worship. That's where culture is. That's where the cultural thing comes in to be wrong. Now, I, 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 I go with the fact that, you know, we kind of, you know, from Asian to Asian, but, but when the, when your culture determines theology and doctrine and who I can reach and who I can't reach, and the culture determines the theology instead of theology determining the culture, that's when it gets wrong. Yeah. Okay, fair. I want to say one thing. Okay. <clears throat> I said uh, that's probably the last thing that's going to be said. Just let we you know. Mowed, we mowed God in our image to justify our sin. That's why we did Repeat it one more time for everybody. Huh? We mow God in our image to justify our sins. There you go. That's a fact. That's powerful right there. Best thing said. All right. With that, we are going to stop and we are going to pick this up. I think we kind of finished through verse 36. Uh, and we will pick it up at 37 and then probably get into chapter 13. So that's where we are. And with that, I'm signing off. And so all three people on the internet, uh, <laughs> bye. <laughs>